So all along the way, this is the, the I guess the resilience has been a belief in, okay, I'm just going to dive into this ambiguity with a vision, believe we're going to get there. I really don't know how it's going to work. Welcome to the Creative Leadership Podcast. My name is Mark. And my name is Rai. And today we talk to Rick Amato about a blank sheet of paper and making it happen. Rick, tell us the story of your name. The name Amato actually has a more interesting story than my first name, Rick. Uh, the name Amato is an old Spanish name, at least the story that I've heard of it. Um, and to give you an idea how old it is, um, my father's parents emigrated from Turkey to the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. And they brought with them a language that my father spoke when he was born in 1932 in Los Angeles at home with them. And that language was medieval Spanish. And it's sort of unbelievable to think that for 400 years, you make all kinds of wonderful things and also kind of scary things about how a culture managed to preserve a language for so long, living outside of Spain. But these were a group of people who called themselves Sephardic Jews. They were the Jews of Spain. Uh, and in 1492, with the Inquisition, they all had to go somewhere else. Some came via Portugal to Amsterdam, of course, about 100, 150 years later. And some ended up in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that was my father's family. And what's remarkable is that the, these Amados um, kept a name and kept a language for 400 years, basically, until they ended up in the United States. And the wonderful thing about the United States, of course, is the melting pot literally melts, literally melts. And so my father's generation is basically the last generation to speak Ladino fluently. But there's still a culture alive in the world of music and culture and people studying it. Um, and so Amato has some context in that world. I don't know exactly where it came from. Some people say there was a, people didn't have last names then. So people say there was a, a beloved person, I don't know, a doctor or somebody who was helping people and they ended up with the name Amato. And then that, that stuck, but I have no record of it. So. In any case, it's a nice story. <laughs> cool. And how would you, how do you introduce yourself? What's on your business card? What are you? My, <laughs> my business card right now, because I'm starting a school, has my name and it looks like it's been scribbled on in blue by a kid. Um, because we're starting a primary school and we didn't really want to have business cards, but with official purposes you need to give some kind of information and in a way that that may describe the way I look at the world is trying to color outside the lines trying to be a little bit playful with what I'm doing uh, but at the same time engaging with others to get something done people love it to see a business card that looks like it's been scribbled on and not screen printed or something so you're the founder of a school yeah yeah I'm the founder of a school how does that, uh, it, it sounds like uh, the, the whole identifying yourself as something is, is still, there's still a filter there. That's funny you say that. Uh, so I think that the school in context is, um, um, I've always been a combination of a creator, a connector of people and ideas. So in that respect, um, and believing in this bringing exceptional diversity together gets you somewhere but also within a vision and a passion. And that passion for me has always been education in one way or another. Um, 
and um, less so, let's say, in my traditional professional life, but I've always had a strong philanthropic piece going next to it, which has been about um, been about education. And, and here it manifests itself in work I've done for the last 20 years almost in bringing um, music education in primary schools. It's kind of typical philanthropic activity. Um, and uh, I was working very locally in the city of Amsterdam, working with both big and small uh, providers of that kind of environment, and working with a lot of schools. And it, would all, it was always uh, an idea in the back of my mind that if I ever had the chance to work on a new school that was fundamentally based on, on among other things, bringing this extracurricular world into school of culture, cultural activities, music, and a lot of other things, I would jump at it. And... Um, and this school ended up being almost literally a, this this philanthropic project that got completely out of hand because it, it it's now taken over and it's what we did. And what's beautiful and wonderful about it is it's also succeeded. And we, you know, we'll, we'll come back to that. But we now have a running school with 70 kids and it's growing fast and the kids love it. The parents love it. A wonderful teaching team. And that all grew out of what was basically a spark, um, uh, a, a philanthropic spark um, 20 years ago. Why is it you do this? Because it doesn't sound like an easy feat. Um, it almost, uh, and as you say, by accident, almost takes over your life. Why is it you do what you do? Why do you say yes? So, you know, the... Um, and I'd love to hear that in three succinct bullet points, and then we'll pick one and dive a bit deeper in that. First of all, if you're given the opportunity to think with a blank sheet of paper about something you're passionate about, jump at it. And I don't think we need more bullet points than that, is the opportunity came up, the people came together, um, and we did it. The reason I'm still doing it is because in the process along the way, we got through each gate and we kept succeeding. There was a lot of luck involved, a lot of hard work involved, a lot of things that could have gone wrong. But I'm still doing it also because we've, we were given an opportunity, we jumped at the opportunity, and the opportunities come back to us and have, have fed it. So initially, I took a year out after doing Think um, to um, to work on this very much as a concept on the side, right? You never know where it's going to go. And then we won the tender, and then it develops, and then it you know it starts the ball starts rolling. And at every point along the way, we gain momentum and think, "Wow, this is amazing!" And we're touching kids, we're changing lives, we're enriching lives, we're making parents awfully happy. And we're able to do that uh, more or less fulfilling a vision, or at least in line with a vision that we still share as a team. I think it's remarkable. So I'm hearing something about a blank sheet of paper, yeah. about the opportunity to jump on and, and the momentum it creates and something about the team. Which one do you want to hear more about? I Robert? mainly heard blank sheet of paper because you said <laughs> that's the only one. And yeah, then you went deeper. It really is. The blank sheet of paper. So three years ago... Three years ago, when I took a year out to start this, the city, uh, the city of Amsterdam is growing. As most people who live here know, there's building sites everywhere. And for every so fell hundred or thousand new residences, you need school. I mean, you need education infrastructure. So the, the previous city council um, went out to the public and said, instead of doing it the way we've done it before and simply asking the school boards to build new schools, let's see what kinds of new ideas we get. And so they put out an open call. Um, and what was 
really interesting about the 130 or so entries in this open call for primary and secondary education, or primary, secondary together, whatever you wanted, very few people got up and in a bitter, sour way said, education sucks, we need to change it, throw everything overboard. Almost everyone started with this, wow, I get a blank sheet of paper, and I can think about this anew with a plot of land, right? And the energy that was, came free with that was, was truly remarkable. And so just being part of that alone, I think, would have been a kind of a gift in itself. You know, we had a wonderful team, worked here with Judith Fisher, who was one of my think, uh, um, yeah, in the think network. Uh, Robert Wolf helped us a lot. Um, but we also had people from the educational field, people from the city, right? And this idea that the city made it possible was, uh, um, you probably overplay it, you know, because how much does the city really do? But it was amazing how much energy uh, and how much positive energy came out of that. I'm, I'm curious, you, because I think you're talking about several blank sheets of paper here. There's the blank sheet of paper to create a school out of nothing, but there's also your blank sheet of paper where you took a year off, it sounds like, to delve into your maybe true passion or calling. Man, that's where where did those papers meet or what was the, how did that play out for you? Uh, if you want to use the paper metaphor there, then the, the, the opportunity to work on a concept itself was, of course, a blank slate. And we could fill it in as we wanted. My contribution to the, to the drawing and forms on that blank slate um, was my own spark and insights into really two things. One was a passion to bring this, uh, to, a passion to bring what is still currently considered extracurricular activities back into school and to make it curricular. Um, and, um, and the second was to be able to actually create, uh, and this is my own background as a, perhaps as an engineer comes out and as a mechanical engineer trained in design and liking the, the, the power of physical space is also being able to develop a context physical context uh, where learning takes place and creating a rich physical context where learning takes place. And so the two, the two pieces in there was, at one hand, it was the, hey, well, here's a blank sheet of paper and we can all work on it. We're all coming at it from our own perspectives, whether it's education or activism or, uh, or, or innovation. Um, and we bring our own pieces of content into it. So the educators brought, here's how the current thing works. The government activists brought in, here's how the system works together, and we want to change that. Um, I brought in both a piece of the extracurricular and also a piece of this passion for, hey, but we can, we can create whole kids here by bringing the context closer to, the, to their educational lives, by bringing them in contact with more people. And none of this was about that education sucks or something, which was wonderful. There was no negative energy in it. It was very much of here is an opportunity. And if you think about this, this is a context, it's a context that's extremely difficult to navigate. You're dealing with the municipality, you're dealing with other schools and school boards, you're dealing with a lot of uh, government regulation. So I'm sure you had to give in to your vision at times. So how have you dealt with that, with this bold vision of something new and the ability to draw something strange on that white sheet of paper. And on the other hand, all the people who try to rein you in or provide you with obstacles. I think maybe the easiest way to answer that is to break it up into three chapters. Because in the concept chapter, 
um, nobody was nobody was fighting against us except ourselves um, because this the the whole mandate was uh, focus on your func focus on your in-house as they say in Dutch so your focus content. on the content of what you're doing don't worry about the regulatory context um, don't worry about the, the the governance context the financial context nothing just focus on a content rich uh, project and in there the uh, the biggest challenge there was um, uh, was team leadership so distilling down what it is we wanted to say and how we were saying it and making decisions about this because this was a volunteer team that was meeting on Mondays every other week and working via Google Docs and we hardly saw each other and you know how do you create a sense of momentum and that came to a head when we had to pitch the project to a um, so we made it through two rounds of like a public, public, uh, what is it, like a beauty pageant. So you go on social media and people vote for you. So we made it through that round. Then we made it through an expert round down to 15. And then the last 15 got to pitch and he had eight minutes to pitch. And um, Robert had helped a lot on energy work and focusing your message. And so this, the think context was very much there in the, in the, in the pitch setup. And I was preparing my talking points and trying to get my what do they need to know and what kind of energy do I need to bring across and all of this. And I get a call at 12.30 that day. My pitch was at 2 from the school director who was supposed to pitch with me. And he said, Rick, I'm going to be fired if I get up there and pitch with you. My school board won't let me do this. Oh, fuck. So, you know, I was depending on him as the, as the guy with the credibility to be able to pull us through. I'm the guy with the vision and a big story. And here was Mr. Credibility as a school director saying, and this can work, this can actually work. He could take the viability and feasibility boxes, right? So that was the first hurdle in that respect in terms of what does the world bring you? The world brings you a, uh, and, and a holy crap moment. Um, and it was wonderful. And, you know, we made it through obviously. Um, and then the team changed completely. It changed in part completely because not all the people who could who were there voluntarily at the beginning could spend more time on it. And it also changed because one of the first ways we were welcomed into the field was um, with a big stack of paper uh, in which the, um, the um, vested order, the four big school boards in Amsterdam North, where we were, got our permit to have a school, uh, were suing the city of Amsterdam and the Ministry of Education to block our next step. And that lawsuit wasn't just a local lawsuit. It was actually that lawsuit was immediately sent to the so-called Ravenstata, so the highest court in the country, dealing with fundamental issues of the right to start a school. Very technical, but still the principle was, we don't want these guys, you did this wrong, city, um, you know, don't let them go. So there we had a whole other, nothing to do with the content of what we're doing, and everything to do with figuring out how to navigate the legal minefield of, um, of the right to start a school, which the city was behind us on. But, I mean, we, in, in a little over a year ago, the case was, uh, the verdict was, actually there was a hearing, then the verdict comes out papers. So a little over a year ago, there was a hearing in September 2017 in The Hague. And at this hearing, you can picture the, the Dutch-style judges with their wonderful togas and sitting high behind a thing. And at a low table, we had, um, we had the, the lawyer for the school boards. We had our lawyer and our consultant. 
there was a lawyer for the city of Amsterdam and, uh, and his consultant and a lawyer for the Ministry of Education and her consultant. In the room were all of the members of all of the school boards in Amsterdam North and all of us. So I don't know, in the room there were 40, 50 people. Um, you'd think that in this kind of, um, in, in this kind of sort of technocratic environment, people would send a representative and we'll see how this turns out. But this was like, um, let's go kill these guys. To me, it was remarkable that all of these school boards shows up, who's talking with who. It's like high school, at, in front of high school again with the little clicks and, you know, people. And I thought, man, this is really, you know, they're, they're against everybody. And, and their lawyer stood up to talk and it was, he went on and on and on and he had only five minutes or something. Yeah, but I have three cases, so I'm going to take 15. And anyway, so this took a whole year speaking of the second context that the world throws at you. And in that year, um, we would have loved to have, we were supposed to start a year ago. We couldn't start. We couldn't hire teachers. We couldn't get funding. We couldn't get our permit um, because the school boards had blocked us. As soon as the verdict came in September last year, in October, all of a sudden, the city came with a plot of land. And we had been working for already a year and a half to get a plot. Um, and all of a sudden the city came with a plot and then it went really quickly. But again, now the, the la this, this building phase of regulatory, which is so interesting is, um, our concept is really based on three pillars. It's based on the content of what we teach. So the methods we use and, you know, the, the, the ways in which we teach kids and the, the stuff we bring to bear, the people that do the teaching, um, You'd be happy to hear, Rod, that all of our teachers have a dual background, and many of them have either a theater or a, another cultural background, and it helps enormously to be able to connect with the kids. And the third is, we call the third teacher, is our, our building, physically. Which opens up? Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and I'll get to that, is, is how the, where the building then is also has an interesting challenge with the outside world and bringing the inside and outside together. When we started the project, we said to the city, we don't want a building. Just where's the next museum that's being built? Like put us in, or doesn't the iFilm Museum, don't they have space? Hmm. Or North doesn't have that many museums and it's being built. You must have tons of new museums. Oh, good question. Well, never really thought about that. Um, we said, well, then let's bring the museums to us, right? So let's have a way to physically connect what we're doing with all these cultural institutions. But then you get into the regulation of how many square meters, how many, how much money you get per square meter, how much, you know, what the laws are about, and understandably, about um, the, 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 the footprint you're allowed to have as a school. And this goes, by the way, for the pension plan for the teachers. It goes for the CIO, the, the way the teachers are paid. It goes for the um, pretty far down into almost every operational element you can imagine. Um, who you work with to make the statutes, to, to make the articles of association. You can't just work with, it, with any notary. It has to be one that's authorized to do schools. Um, and um, so the puzzle got really thick. And, um, and that's the phase we've now gotten through. So we have a temporary building. We have a teaching staff of, of uh, eight now. Um, and we're in the final phases of building the building. And if you want that, the connection then with um, how the building brings the inside and the outside together um, is the building uh, is built on principle of flexibility. So all 
uh, classrooms that we have can be opened into double classrooms with a dividing wall. It may sound like a small thing, but it's a big deal. Um, in order to optimize the space in the building, instead of building a building with hallways and doors everywhere, so-called uh, traffic space, which uses up space for no purpose, um, we have um, a lot of shared space and atrium space, so we've, we've optimized the box that we have. And then we said, well, let's also enable us to connect literally to the outside, like a plug-and-play kind of, like in software, you know, you create an API so that people can plug into you and the API is with software and you gotta have a connector. And the connector for us is literally the building opens. So we have an enormous uh, set of garage doors. Uh, we have an enormous set of barn doors. And with all of these traveling shows that come around to schools, but also ateliers, we have a writer working with us now that's in a caravan camper that's literally on our schoolyard. And she sits and writes children's books all day. And she invites groups of kids in to help work Sweet. on the children's books. Amazing. I'm, I'm curious, by the way, you mentioned like three three parts to this journey just now. And it seems like each part of them, each part was a moment where your resilience moved you to the next part. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that moment of resilience. The, um, the pitch moment, which still really, st I can remember that viscerally, getting that phone call and getting fired up. A uh, part of it was preparation. I'm really thankful for the, for the preparation we did um, in order to, to be able to withstand this, basically. Um, and um, so I think we were prepared. Um, and, um, and I put on some really rockin' music <laughs> before, uh, before I was going to go on. Any particular kind? Yeah. And then things, as you know, things kind of get, then, then you're flush with adrenaline and we win. And, um, and then we got the lawsuit. And I think the resilience in us came l less from us and more from the encouragement of the, of the experts we brought on to say, you know, you have a case, uh, keep going, don't give up hope, um, you know, um, we had some really good people working for us. And um, it wasn't easy in that period. In that period, we also had a team breakdown. So we had the people who left the team during that period. It was really in the that storming phase because we had to develop a point person in leadership and take a next step and we were locked. So we also had to hire somebody in there. Some really rough sessions with the team to, to re, reorient ourselves. In some respects, the lawsuit was a blessing in disguise because we felt so much pressure. We, we, won in, we won in January. You're supposed to submit your application for a school permit by February 1st. 
So we did a blank pro forma application with the city promising to open in September with no location, no budget, no teachers, no anything. Um, and so in some respects, having the having this delay helped us uh, find our feet, find our pacing, reorganize the team and get going. This last bit, um, I don't know if I have enough retrospective yet. I'm still in it because there's a fourth chapter which involves moving into the new building. And then after that, we still need to grow to a certain norm, achieve our goals, and there's an end location on the map for us. So all along the way, this is the, the I guess the resilience has been a belief in, okay, I'm just going to dive into this ambiguity with a vision, believe we're going to get there. I really don't know how it's going to work. And I had I started to have a weekly cycle where I um, I would finally sleep well on Friday night. It was always a Friday night. Friday, somehow Fridays would solve things. It's a storm. It's a storm. Can you hear it? I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to yeah. our lightning round. So in our lightning round, we uh, we wanted to ask you a couple of uh, more lighthearted questions, starting with whether you have any kind of recommendation for whoever's listening to this, uh, be it uh, some kind of cultural recommendation, a book, a movie, a museum, something that has meant a lot to you or something that you've recently encountered that you think, oh, this is great. So everybody should, should, should experience this. Well, go get your fix of Bach to begin with, because that's like even where trance music comes from, like go get your fix of some big Bach. Bach is in the composer? Is in the composer, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but okay, that's like... It's like saying go to church or something, but it's um, in ter in terms of uh, why Bach. You know, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows except there's something magic about his music, especially the 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 kind of the the um, I think the solo stuff for me, the solo violin, uh, the the suites and cello suites and the and the piano works. Um, for me, it's 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 perfect music. It's like uh, it like massages your brain. It, it, it takes you somewhere. Do you have a daily practice or a ritual that you do regularly that makes you perform the way you perform? The biggest, the biggest insight for me in the last years is I need more sleep than I thought I did. So uh, I, um, I try to keep a pretty rigorous sleep schedule, uh, going to bed a little earlier than I would want, and that way I can get up early. Um, I think that's helped the most of anything. Um, and also try to swim regularly. And uh, this summer, the big new thing for me that was an eye-opener is uh, open water swimming. So getting out in as big water as possible, and that really empties your mind. You can't think about anything else. Thank you very much. This was the Creative Leadership Podcast. My name is Mark. And I'm Rod. Thanks for listening.